we could see two people, for instance, you two, Tiffany and Brad, you could be exhibiting the exact same behavior, but because of your Enneagram type, you'd be doing it from very different motivations and for very different reasons, right? And so just to assume that what we see on the surface or what we see initially on a screen and just to make assumptions about that is dangerous. But the Enneagram can help us see, okay, there's something going on beneath the surface here. And that ethic of care that I think makes faculty work difficult, but also really rewarding <laughs> can be put to use here to say, okay, I wonder what's going on you know, beneath the surface with this student, with that interaction. The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. Welcome back to the Digital to Learn podcast. We're here for part two with Drew Mosier. But first, I want to welcome to the show my co-host, Brad Garner. Hey, Brad. Hey, Tiffany. I have a riddle for you. You do? Yeah. What's that? How do you fix a broken iPod? A broken iPod? You know, I just heard that after 21 years, those are going out of commission. But that's don't beside... Try to, don't try to flat. Do you know the answer or not? <laughs> I'm buying time. I don't. With a podcast. Oh, my. <laughs> it's good. It's good. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> no, I really did just hear on the radio. 21 years ago is when the first one came out and they're no longer going to be manufactured. So. So that joke will be out of style very quickly. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. We'll cut it okay. out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but on to business. We are welcoming back to the show. Drew Mosier. Drew, it's so good to have you back. Hey, thanks for having me back. Must not have screwed up the first part too much, I guess. <laughs> no, absolutely not. We have more to explore with the Enneagram. Good, so good. we're moving along. For our listeners who didn't get a chance to catch part one, this would be a good time to press pause to go back and to listen to part one with Drew Mosher on the Digital to Learn podcast. There's a classic text that we actually looked at in my leadership studies long ago, but it's by Henry now, and it's the five lies of identity. And one of the things I read that you shared was kind of a re-examination of that work. And I'm curious how those five lives identity impact you now, knowing that you are a three on the Enneagram, but also yeah. how do you see educators helping students break those lies of identity that they may come into their academic program with? Yeah, I think Henry Nowen's wisdom is evergreen in so many ways, I think. <laughs> and especially now, it seems like everywhere we turn, there's a leadership crisis or failure. And I think his wisdom on leadership uh, should be mandatory reading for us all, I think, in this season of life. But yeah, he does outline these five lies of identity. They're very simple, but so profound when we say them out loud and actually speak mm -hmm. them. And they are, I am what I have. I am what I do. I am what others say about me. I am nothing more than my worst moment. And I am nothing more than my best moment. Mm -hmm. And I think we can read those and say, well, yeah, of course. But if we actually use some honest self-examination, we can see, okay, we buy into these lies a lot, right? And I think each personality type can fall prey to these lies, some lies more so than others or these lies, they can fall prey to them in different ways. Because I think a lot of what 
I do with the Enneagram is show how our personality structure does serve us really well, but it, and it's often coming from this core want or desire, but we question whether or not we can have it. And therefore we settle for something that's a little less than best because we don't think we can get it because we live in this kind of broken, difficult, challenging world. And so that's where I think these lies of identity can really take hold where we can be defined by what we possess, by the things we do in our work, by other people's opinions about us, by our embarrassing failures or by our most mountaintop successes. And those things can really damage us in terms of our own understanding of who we are and how we live in this world. And so for me as a type three, given what I shared at the beginning in the get to know you section, this has been a lifelong and will continue to be a lifelong journey for me of not being defined by my successes and by what I do. It's really hard for a three to live as a human being and not a human doing, right? Mm -hmm. It's really hard for a three to be able to talk about themselves when asked, tell me a little bit about yourself without talking about the accomplishments or the things that are impressive, right? Mm -hmm. That's really challenging. But when we, when we realize, okay, there's more to us than these things, than our possessions, there's more to us than our activity. There's more to us than other people's opinions, than our failures, than our successes. Then we have to dig a little deeper and say, okay, well, who am I? Right. And that can be really scary to do that. It can instigate a bit of an existential crisis certainly has for me, but what that means is I think students, when they're in the pursuit of their education are really in the crucible of these questions and these lies, right? They are really in this space of trying to figure out who they are and they're looking for metrics to help them understand who they are in all of these ways. So as educators, I think it's critical for us first to model, I think it's Mark Schwain that talks about the idea of learned uncertainty where we have this education, we have this expertise, but it needs to be complemented and integrated with this humility that helps us model what it means to not be so defined by our degrees or our expertise or the fact that it says professor in front of our name or any of these things or the books that we've written or the articles, et cetera. (laughs) When we model that learned uncertainty, I think it helps our students realize, okay, this is probably a more whole healthy and authentic way of living that still allows me to pursue things that are important, but not be wholly defined by them in some simplistic way. I think that's important. I think it's also important for educators just to be aware that our students are struggling with these lies because we all do. And so if our students are struggling with these lies and we remind ourselves, Hey, when our students enter our learning spaces, whether they be digital or face-to-face in person, that our students are coming to this learning environment, wrestling with these lies. When we have that knowledge, when we have that awareness, that should shape how we approach and engage the learning environment, right? That should give us a little bit of grace and compassion to develop an ethic of care for our learning space that helps students feel safe and that they don't have to kind of lean into these lies in order to be effective in this learning environment. I think one of the most encouraging things about your work is the manner in which you've been able to integrate various perspectives, like the Enneagram, like the Clifton Strengths, career readiness, student success, all of those things that we do, and not just be a 
an advocate or a salesman for one of those, but you put yeah. those together so nicely. How do you view the intersection between your scholarly interests and digital teaching and learning? Oh, yeah, it's interesting. So when I think about the work that I've done in the digital kind of teaching and learning space, well, one, I would say it's kind of an exciting time. I think the fact that we've been forced as a global humanity to pivot towards digital spaces in the midst of and in the wake of the global pandemic, I think has caused us to confront the things that I've been working on, you know, our own personality, growth and development, <laughs> self-awareness in those spaces, right? Because it was the only option. And I think it also should provide some opportunities for educators who are designing digital spaces to think not just in terms of learning styles or Gardner's multiple intelligences theory or any of these other things that have been really formative in education past 50 years, but actually to tend to, I have potentially nine different personalities entering my digital learning space. That can be daunting and overwhelming. At the mm -hmm. same time, it can be really interesting and encouraging, right? Because if I have that knowledge, even if I don't know the personality type of every student in my learning space, approaching that learning environment with the possibility of, hey, nine different types could be entering this space here should shape the way in which I tend and facilitate the learning in the space. Mm -hmm. I think. And so that's where I think there could be some great intersections with this growing and emerging digital learning movement is that people, just because they're Zooming into a space, they don't leave their personality out <laughs> of the equation, right? They are bringing it with them, even if represented through this talking head on a screen, right? Mm -hmm. Their personalities are there and are present. And so we need to be aware of that. And that needs to form and shape how we go about tending to these spaces. So like an example would be those that enter those spaces as type nines, the peacemakers. Type nines in general, this is not true of all, but in general, don't like to be put on the spot and called upon. And so when we do kind of these random for the sake of engagement in digital spaces <laughs> and we call upon people, that can be detrimental to some type nines. And I could go on, but I think there are a lot of examples in which this knowledge could be really helpful in terms of being effective in the digital space. The beauty of that description is your emphasis on the faculty member wanting to know who their students are. Yeah. Wanting to focus on their needs and their learning rather than look at me, I'm an expert. Let me show you some stuff. Yeah, I think you're right. And please hear me. I'm not saying that every faculty member has to be an expert on the Enneagram and has to know every one of their students type. But I think once we understand maybe some of the basic frameworks of the nine types on the Enneagram, then we can start to see some things and maybe connect some dots, right? Absolutely. And this is also what's true about the Enneagram. It's true in a digital learning space that it's true in a corporate office. We could see two people, for instance, you two, Tiffany and Brad, you could be exhibiting the exact same behavior, but because of your Enneagram type, you'd be doing it from very different motivations and for very different reasons, right? And so just to assume that what we see on the surface or what we see initially on a screen and just to make assumptions about that is dangerous, but the Enneagram can help us see, okay, there's something going on beneath the surface here. And that ethic of care that I think makes 
faculty work difficult, but also really rewarding <laughs> can be put to use here to say, okay, I wonder what's going on, you know, beneath the surface with this student or with that interaction. Very good. It, um, I don't know which way to make the case, I suppose. I've been thinking about this, but if there's an completely asynchronous online course, yeah. especially if it's very discussion based heavy, which makes my skin crawl, but there could be that, or there could be one where there's synchronous sessions like zoom happening week after week because of my own personality and other factors. I want to see the synchronous sessions happen because I want to be able to see folks. Cause I feel that it would be easier to pick up on some personality cues, learning sure. style cues face to face. At the same time, we just talked about the nine. I'm married to a nine. I'm thinking, well, for some in the discussion forum or in some asynchronous elements, you may learn more when they unpack and they have time yeah. to share and open up. So both seem really important, mm -hmm. but I am wondering too about some programs and courses that are designed really heavy in the asynchronous side or really heavy, you know, with synchronous yeah. activities. Yeah, I think you raise an important point. And the answer is not to, well, I'm going to create nine different versions of the same course <laughs> and then sort everyone Harry Potter style, right? <laughs> um, yeah. That's not the answer because it's just not realistic. What's helpful, though, is if you are the faculty member designing, whether it be a synchronous or asynchronous course, know this mode is going to be more effective by default to certain students and more challenging for certain types of students doesn't mean you have to reinvent the wheel for everyone, but I think that knowledge should help you see, okay, when you start to see a lack of engagement or you start to see some struggle, or maybe it just helps you think, okay, if my entire course is asynchronous, everything's recorded and I just kind of hit play on the thing or open it up to the students, <laughs> not that that's how you do it, but maybe there could be ways to do check-ins that are synchronous or more personalized to make sure that the students who may be less inclined towards the asynchronous environment that they're doing okay. Mm -hmm. And that you can say, okay, they are getting something out of this, or here are some ways I can maybe help them in this asynchronous mode and be more effective. Does that make sense? Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. You mentioned how the global pandemic kind of influences the intersection of your work and digital teaching and learning. As you look around with other changes in higher ed, as you continue to read and write and everything that you do at teach, do you have any strong feelings or predictions about the future of higher ed? Oh boy. Yeah. I have maybe some hot takes, you know, I don't have a crystal ball, but yeah. you know, and maybe we could uh, revisit this a few years down the road and see if any of this comes true. That but, is the plan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I do think that the shifts we're seeing in how people work mm -hmm. are going to continue. I don't think remote work's going away. I think the nature of how we work has changed forever. We were even seeing some major companies that are saying, okay, it's time to come back to work. And their workforce is saying no, or not in the ways in which you want us to. And so I think that change, that is going to move toward education in a significant way. Mm -hmm. And probably the implications of such, I can't even fully predict or see. I just, what's happening in the remote workspace is going to 
we're going to be talking about remote education in different ways and not just online education, but what does remote education look like? Now that doesn't mean that there isn't a place for traditional residential mm -hmm. college experiences. I think there still will be, but I do think we will see as a result of that disruption, plus this enrollment cliff that everyone is afraid of, that's going to happen where we have a lot less high school graduates seeking to enter college. We're going to see some campuses close or merge. I think that's going to happen. Yeah. And there's still going to be a lot of varying types of institutions, but I do think that there are going to be fewer of the traditional residential campuses in the country. And I also think too, that what we're seeing with things such as like the Google career certificates and some of these, we're going to start to see some of the major companies, especially tech, take a lot more ownership and a lot more control over how they develop their talent pipeline, mm -hmm. which I think is going to continue to push this competency mode of education and chip away at this kind of old accreditation model, mm -hmm. right? I think that's coming. Now, the challenge though is, is I think there's still a role for a lot of the things that a more traditional education can provide, like critical thinking and liberal arts mindset and those sorts of things. But I think there's going to be some interesting kind of innovations and experiments in how to maintain that or provide it, given some of these more direct kind of talent pathways. Mm -hmm. All that to say, education is going to be really disrupted. It's ripe for disruption, I think. Given what we're seeing, I think there's a significant question about the return on investment culturally right now over an education. Absolutely. I think there's a significant pushback over student loan debt. And I think it's no longer guaranteed. I'll just borrow the money and figure it out. And I also think too, the labor market is shifting and moving so rapidly and education historically is really bad at <laughs> being quick and nimble. And so mm -hmm. at some point there's going to be some massive disruptions, I think sooner rather than later to align with those trends. Drew, my final question mm -hmm. today is, is there anything that you're currently working on that we could have the inside scoop about? It may be an article, a book. It might mm. be a LinkedIn pool. post that's in a draft pool. mode, a pool. <laughs> a pool. No more pools about killed me. Yeah. And no books right now. I think a lot of my time has been spent. So I co-host a podcast on the Enneagram called Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast. We just finished up season three. So we're kind of recovering from that wow. right now. So a lot of my time has been spent doing that. And then I think a lot of my time and energy has been spent working on how to translate effectively good Enneagram insights to a corporate environment. So I found mm -hmm. more and more kind of consulting client work in the corporate space, because I think they're realizing, Hey, we have that time and money quote that you read earlier, that time and money just aren't solving. And I think they're realizing that this self-awareness piece is really critical in order to help them navigate this great reshuffle that we're seeing in the labor market where they're trying to figure out we can't keep throwing money at everyone to keep them. We got to find some other ways and maybe we need to tend to healthy people and healthy culture. And so I think the Enneagram can provide a lot of insight there. So those are things I've been working on, which is fun and interesting. Yeah. We definitely want to have you back later to talk more about these things. It's been a great yeah. conversation today. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks. This was fun. The time went quickly and 
this has been great. So I love the opportunity to come back. And I hope Tiffany wasn't too irritating today. <laughs> no. <laughs> I thought you were getting ready to apologize to me. So right now yeah, I don't wow. have any words for you, no. Brad. <laughs> what would Didn't I possibly have to apologize for? I, I <laughs> well, there it is, right? There it is. And I got that right, wrong, like sense we, of justice yeah. right now. Like you got some work to do offline, I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we need to go, everybody. We're wrapping this up. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> thank you for joining us, Drew. I guess thank you for joining us, Brad. And <laughs> to all of our listeners, please tune in to the Digital to Learn podcast again next week. Check out our website for additional resources. This will be the first time we've shared links to Enneagram resources, which I'm excited about. So please make sure to check out the episode pages for Drew Mosier. And we'll be back next week on the Digital to Learn podcast. Thank you for joining us on Digital to Learn. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Embrace the future. Always keep learning. Would you really? Oh, go ahead. No, you go. You go. <laughs> <laughs> this would be really funny to keep in there, especially yeah. the scoop, like after the episode ends. And then Shay, you can just weave this into the end where we're like, no, stop. There it, you go. No, stop it. Quit. I said stop. <laughs> <laughs>